Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. Joining us today to continue our talk on Michigan's musical heritage is Petoskey resident, Roger Tallman. Good morning, or hey. afternoon. So or great evening. to have you back, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Like, good to be here. Always good to see you. And you, you know, right when we left off, we were just talking a little bit about, about you, what your transition from Motown uh, to Jingles, and then it's going to get you to California. Um, tell, us, tell us a bit about that segue. California was a really cool thing. After college, my sister, who was one of my oldest, my oldest sister, Sarah Jane, she was nine years older than I was. And when I was six, she left uh, Detroit to go to New York as a background singer for a group called the Spellbinders. And I really never got to know her other than seeing her maybe on a few family uh, vacations or uh, holidays that she would come home for. And when I finished college, she called me and said, hey, congrats. Uh, I got this TV show we've never sung together. Why don't you uh, come out to L.A. and we'll sing on this show and you make some good union money and have a nice summer. So I uh, drove out to L.A., which is a long, a hell of a long drive, and uh, started working on a show that she, she had. She was a, a vocal contractor and there were four girls and four guys that were hired to work on the Julie Andrews Hour. And I was one of the guys. And that was a summer show, 13 weeks, um, with killer, uh, like, Nelson Riddle was the band director. Uh, I know that name. He was ridiculous. Ray Brown, the bass player, stand-up bass player, was one of my famous idols in the music business. He was playing his upright bass like crazy. And it was just uh, who's who in the band. And a who's who of background singers in, in L.A. as well. And I was the one of the top tenors of, of four guys. And um, the thing that really is cool about working with your family in a vocal group, and people might know this from the Osmond family or watching The Sound of Music with the Von Trapp family, is that a family has a unique sound. And when three of us got in a group of eight, we really kind of demanded a, a, like a whole sound for the group. And that was a plus for any vocal director. And uh, our vocal director was a guy named Dick Williams, who was Andy Williams' brother, who was an incredible vocal uh, arranger. And the band was killer, and we would pre-record most of the music uh, and uh, and then be fill-ins for live uh, performances on uh, on stage that where they needed bodies, like hands, big, you know, like big cast numbers. They had dancers, and then we would fill in in the back row. In fact, my name on that show was Big Boy Back Row because all I had to do was wave my hands up in the air and look like I was making my feet do the same thing. So that was a cool summer job. And at the end of that job, Dick Williams said to everybody, hey, there's another TV show coming up that I've been hired to do, and I want to bring you guys to it. And it was called The Carol Burnett Hour. Oh, man. And I had no idea what she was like, but I took that gig and never looked back and worked with my family on that show for eight and a half years. And uh, during that time, I was still writing jingles in the in the in my off time when we'd have breaks, because you work for thirteen weeks, then you take a couple weeks off, and then as singers, usually you try to find something to do. And if people in L.A. contractors knew who you were and that you were with part of the Tallman family, they would hire all three of us. Like we'd get hired to go sing with Burt Bacharach and in uh, Harrah's in Lake Tahoe for a week or two and uh, go up to beautiful Northern California and, you know, have a good time, make really good money. 
Bill Harrow was also a singer. Great story about him is when we started working with Bert on his show, Bill came to our singers' dressing rooms and gave all of us a bag of chips and said, I'm a singer. I know how tough it is. I don't want you to spend any of your own money here. So when you run out of these chips, come to my office and get more. And I'm not a gambler, but, you know, it's funny when you have other people's money. <laughs> it's a little different then, huh? Yeah, totally different. But, uh, yeah, so gigs like that. And then I got jobs in the off time, like Cat Stevens' last concert. Uh, I was hired with a group of eight to sing his last gig. And uh, working with Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt, you know, during those times, we were all young. And I just really was just happy to be working and uh, trying to figure out where my next gig was coming from. So did that in L.A., and, uh, you know, it was, it was a fun way to make a living. And then the jingle thing really got, got good, and I, I did the very first Toyota commercial in America, uh, which was unusual because it was a foreign car and nobody was doing that. And I scored this spot called See How Much Car Your Money Can Buy, and it was really advertised, like, on the air every other minute. It was big, big push by Toyota to get the Toyota Corolla noticed. And um, I also got the gig to be the conductor in the TV commercial because they wanted to use uh, the 1812 Overture and use the last cadence the, where the cannons go off. Boom, 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 boom. Those were all car doors slamming on a stage with an orchestra. And I went into the agency and I was the only guy in the music business that was asked to come in to talk about the spot that brought the score. And the creative director looked at me and said, I don't care about what you can do, but you're the only person who showed up with the score, so you're hired. So I thought, hey, that was good, you know, background for me to go and do a little research. So I got that gig and one of my buddies in Detroit called and said, Tallman, I saw the spot. You should open an office in New York. And I work for Campbell Ewald and we will give you work like Chevy, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Buick. So I was on the next plane to New York, opened an office, went back to L.A. every two weeks for about six months. And during that time in New York, I would call on Madison Avenue. And they would see me in a heartbeat because I was no threat. I was from out of town. I would always say, hey, it's Roger Tallman. I'm a composer in L.A. I'm here for a couple of days. Can I come and see you? Yeah, sure. Now, when you're a New Yorker and a music company and you call up to get an appointment like that, they will not see you. You know, they want your reel. They want to get stories about you. So that's how I got to know people in New York, and it paid off. I started getting this little, you know, spot and Coca-Cola and Revlon and CoverGirl and all these other cool hotel spots for Sheridan. And then NBC Sports called me and said, we want you to do a demo for Super Bowl Seventeen, which... I did, and that started my NBC career. Well, you know, it's 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 funny. It's a uh, it's a uh, you th- you'd think it would almost be the opposite. You know, the New York group would be hanging tight with the the New York group, and some out of town kids are not going to get any shot at it. Like trying to break down the barriers. But you're you you had preferential uh, treatment in a sense coming from L.A. to New York. Well, I had that one big commercial on the air that helps. Yeah, it's like when I really got a big spot, like when I got. When I, the, I, when I actually won the Super Bowl in 1983 for Super Bowl 17, people would say, well, what have you done? And when you say, oh, yeah, I just wrote the theme for the Super Bowl and 50 million people watched it, then they have a different idea. But maybe we should have a conversation. Sure. You know, and for me, like you talk about northern Michigan having a quality of life and everything and what we have up here is really unique. 
when my dad had his job at Bayview, it was called the Bayview Summer College of Music. And it was basically a small version of what Bayview is now. Um, the musical uh, indoctrination that you get when you're in Bayview, it was every kind of music, classical, pop, uh, I mean, really old classical as well as upscale classical that was kind of newbie stuff from Marvin Hamlish and uh, different younger composers, uh, Perry Bodkin. And they were uh, gospel music and things like that that was part of the menu out there. Taught me a lot about opera, country music, pop music, orchestral music. And so when I went into New York, I was kind of well prepared for what was yet to come. And uh, then you get musicians that can play anything that you put in front of them. And that's where I really shined because I hired killer players that made me sound great. They were so, you know, that's the one thing about New York and L.A. It's hard to tell where the musicians are better because when I moved from L.A., I thought everybody in L.A. was like the cream of the crop. Then I went to New York and had these guys working for me. I was like, holy mackerel. There's great musicians all over the place. And that was a real joy for me because no matter where I worked, I had that same mindset. If I went to Texas, University of Texas has the best brass player players in the world that graduate from there and then go on to be famous like Jerry Hay and um, just, you know, Maynard Ferguson, uh, like, graduated from down there. And it, it's amazing. Wherever you go in America... You'll find great music, and that's that's something I told you. I, I was just at a at a three day long Polish wedding last week. I'm still burnt from that, and I get down there and I, I've got my equipment and I'm going to play with my old friend who's getting married. We haven't jammed together in 20 years. Yeah, and he put together this trio uh, that was playing, and uh, that's something about a true musician. Like you always appreciate seeing somebody who's better than you. I think. I mean, that's 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 the fun. Oh yeah, is running into yeah. some some guys. And there's one guy that was that was playing, and. Uh, He's, he's 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 traditionally trained U of M degree six years, and then the other cat sitting next to him. These guys are just equal. They're cut. They're they're both just tearing right. it up. Well, the I guy sitting right next to him, he, he had no. I, I told him, I said, play an E dominant seventh with a flat nine. He's like, I don't know any chords, man. Just play. <laughs> and that was that was uh, Larry McRae's son. Yeah, blue, uh, right, blue. Yeah, and I'm um, like, so you got one guy that's trained for six years, you know, at, at, in a in a, in a, in a oh, yeah. formal setting. And one dude who was just tearing it up, and then that was for me. That was amazing to yeah. to hang with these two guys. I just wanted to play more. You get you want to be a better basketball player, play with somebody. That can just yeah. kick your ass on the court. And know? there are a lot of musicians like that that just have a killer ear. It doesn't you know it doesn't matter. They can look at your hands and figure out what you're playing. That's what he was doing. He just he said right? just start playing, man. Just yeah. play. I'll it's follow. different. It's different. Like even even cats that like uh, Lee Rittenauer was in high school when I was in L.A. and. I couldn't get the guitar player that I wanted to get. And they said, oh, yeah, there's this kid in high school. He's killer. His name is Lee Rittenauer. You should probably get him, but you can't get him until high school's over. So your session has to start at, like, 4. Well, he walked in, and uh, Michael Lang was my piano player that day. And Lee's sitting right behind him in a little gobo, surrounded. And Lee's, like, looking at the street music. And Michael says, hey, man, that's my part. Don't play the piano part. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, some of them are just so good. Now, Lee can read anything on a paper, but other players, like you said, you know, they come in and they just get the feel. And music is like the, it's all about the groove anyway. Well, you talk about L.A., you talk about uh, Carol Kay, and that's the, that's the wrecking crew. Oh, yeah. I mean, you sit down with those guys. I mean, Glenn Campbell and, yeah. and, I mean, 
these are these are players unrivaled. Oh, yeah. Carol picked up a guitar at fourteen, started taking lessons, and next year she's playing professional gigs all around L.A. Oh yeah, and she, and the last video I saw uh, online with her, she was like elderly and kicking butt, sitting in her living room playing like slap the same bass, video. You know, like go girl. <laughs> and then they give her a bass. One day the bass player didn't show up. They're like, can you play bass? She said, yeah, it'd be, it'd be yeah. fun to, to, to tone it down a little bit and have four right. strings to the six. Yeah. yeah there's, there's some great stories about musicians um, that all over the place that you hear oddball things. Like Eric Weisberg is a banjo player from Woodstock. He's passed now. But he told me one day that he did the, the, uh, the movie Deliverance. And he was the banjo player oh, with that man. little kid. His arms were the arms of the kid playing banjo and he said that took me four hours that was the worst gig i ever played <laughs> probably the best known banjo lick in the world though <laughs> yeah but he but he would he could play i did a job for ocean spray and i had to have a ukulele played and eric he said i don't really play that but then he picked it up and retuned it and played like he'd been playing the ukulele for his whole life it reminds me of a story uh uh, uh jimmy page he comes up uh behind uh uh, Vic Flick is that what was that his name in 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 in, uh, in, in London? Yeah, I think it's Vic Flick, the, the session player. And here's here's 15 year old Jimmy Page coming and kicking his ass on a daily basis. <laughs> right. We move forward to Led Zeppelin, uh, and uh, Jimmy Page saw a mandolin sitting there, walks over, strums it a couple times, and writes "Battle of Evermore." There you go. I mean, like yeah. just picks up a mandolin and creates this this, this sure ungodly sounding you know track. Yeah, there's something out there that just takes over, man. Unreal. Yeah. It's unreal. I wish I, I, I guess I, sometimes I wish I had that talent. Sometimes I'm glad I, I got to strive for it too. Got to work my ass out to try to get those chords. You but. know, I don't think anybody really thinks it comes easy. You know, some, it, it happens. You know, sometimes like uh, uh, Keith Richards is famous for this. He, he always carried around a tape recorder. Yeah. And he slept with one next to him. So yeah. that when he woke up in the middle of the night, he had an idea he would record it or sing it. Or, you know, if he got out of bed, he'd get his guitar and play it and record it and then go back to bed. He's been quoted and, as saying he actually has never written a song. <laughs> they, they come to him. Yeah. He, and, and then he puts it down on the recorder and goes right. back to sleep. Like he literally said, I just, I just channel him. I don't yeah. write him. I've never written a song. I was in the studio one time at Right Track recording and they were, the, the, the stones were working all night. My session started at nine. It was a big orchestra date. And... I walked into the producer's lounge and all the stones were sleeping on couches. And uh, Keith was had his leopard coat on and sport coat looking really dapper. And he was looking all over, lifting magazines up. And, and he was like, where's my effing cassette? I can't find my effing cassette. And I was like, I don't know, man. I'm just here for the next session. So I'm doing the orchestra. We're doing something for NBC. And my engineer, Alan Meyerson, who is my uh, engineer in New York, he's like, on the talk back with me and I hear Keith going, have you seen my cassette? And he was walking now in, in the control room. So I stopped, I walked in, I said, what's going on? He said, well, I, I can't find my cassette and it's got my, you know, some tunes on it, I gotta find it. And he reaches into a pocket, he said, oh, here it is. Here it is. <laughs> like, it's more, the cassette's back, more important to him than his yeah. guitar. He was like, continue, talk amongst yourself, go on, go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> and what was Keith doing up at that hour? Yeah, right, he was, he had he had help, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's amazing. Like so, like during this crazy. Every time I I talk to you, we get we get more information. But um, uh, the jingles things always kind of continuing on though. I mean, you're going from Motown, then you're at Carol Burnett. Um, oh yeah. Then you're back to New York. Then you're in New York. Uh, so, but the jingle thing still 
It's, it's, it, that was kind of your destiny in a sense, right? It, it, I mean, well, it became that way. When I went to New York, there were only 15 or 14 jingle companies that did pretty much every jingle in America at that time. And you have all those companies being split up between 14 guys, and then I come in. And um, it was an eye-opener for me how much work was there. I mean, some weeks when I got known and I got uh, a client list that I could actually, you know, call on and say, hey, if you got anything, I'd like to throw my hat in the ring. Some days or some weeks we'd do like, I don't know, 20 spots. That's a lot of music to That's write. That's a lot. Yeah. And at one point then I started picking up writers I had. Uh, Lee Shapiro was a great, great writer, a um, guy who bought something called the Synclavier. And he was part of, uh, of uh, oh, God, the Four, four Seasons. He, he was the keyboard for the Four Seasons. And basically they had stopped touring and he needed something to do. And I heard he was looking for a gig and I hired him as a writer because we were just slammed. And then I hired somebody else and I had about eight writers and we'd sit down and at the beginning of the day, and just hand stuff out that we had to work on. And you drew you drew quite a bit from your Motown connections, right? Later oh, on. Oh yeah, well you know, like bass lines. I always knew that the groove is like everything. And when we did a spot for a client, I always wanted to do what I liked, what the client wanted, and something that was going to be played in the future. Because we'd be in the studios, and like Madonna would be in the next room, and you'd hear this dance music going on, and you go, "What the hell is that? Something new." And then you get a job and you say, hey, you know what? This record's not going to come out for like 45, you know, days or six months or whatever. Let's do something like that. And the client would listen to it and say, what the hell is that? They're like, well, that's going to be a pop record for this chick Madonna. And he say, well, okay, I'll pick that one because I'm going to put my spot on the air for a long time. And so we always did at least three spots. I was looking at my library of stuff. I did 3,000 commercials in the time that I was in New York from 1983 until 2002. Man, man. Yeah. So you and mentioned Toyota. Uh, what would another great commercial? What, what's another jingle? Maybe well, everybody. You know, made. I did the, when I got my gig for NBC, they liked me a lot because I was younger. I put a rock and roll section in the middle of a symphony orchestra. And that became the sound of sports. I wasn't the only guy at the time that was doing that, but I was one of the few. And they liked that. So they just kept having me compete on everything. So I did five different Olympic openings for them. And one of my favorites was the opening of uh, uh, the, I think it was 98 Olympics. Um, and that was in Nagano. And I wrote something uh, that was called We Are One. And it was all about the experience of a winning sports fan reaching out to the fans, like slapping fives and stuff like that. And I, pre I pitched it to NBC and they loved the idea. And it won an Emmy. And uh, it's nice when you're, you got a vocal piece because I was really a vocal writer, but this was a big vocal piece about up in the morning. You know, it was it had a great story about what it's like to be an athlete, and then what it's like to reach out to somebody in the fans that is appreciating you. So the whole "We Are One" campaign took some, you know, really it it gave me a whole bunch of energy for other business that followed, and like they just kept giving me work. Like I don't know baseball and basketball and Wimbledon and America's Cup and things like that. So but you're was, a pioneer. You're doing things that are out of the box. You're progressive. You're ahead of the game. It was fun. Like you said, you know, listen to Madonna, then go into the... Oh, yeah. You know, you'd go in the studio and, you know, like Foreigner. I was in, in Studio B at Right Track, and Frank Filippetti, their engineer for Foreigner at the time, came into my studio to talk to Alan Meyerson and said, dude, you got to come and see this. Take a break. 
and they they were doing I want to know what love is and the choir was singing that hook that's one of their biggest in. anthems yeah and I mean it was just chilling moments you know remembering that stuff you think geez that was like put you on fire to go back and do something equally as good you know it's a very inspirational to see that kind of work going on you, so you, for me it was just you know being at the right place and the right time and sucking up the right vibes and you know being not afraid to ask for uh, for work it seems like it was coming to you though man it's like yeah it's like yeah yeah and and probably and the, you asked me about my favorite thing i was just noted as the i have the longest sports theme on television right now it's uh, espn baseball tonight and espn approached me because i did nbc sports music they were not even a station and two guys in connecticut called up my rep and said hey we're going to be a station and we're going to go after major league baseball and we want Roger to write a theme for us and for Baseball Tonight. And I wrote Baseball Tonight theme. And uh, and about a year later, they got a contract for Major League Baseball. And it was the main theme and has been on their all their broadcasts for, since then. Different what, arrangements, yeah. but still the same theme. What do you write on? What do you, what do you, what's your main instrument? You know, I write in my head first because I'm a singer. And then I sit down at a piano, and I have a Kurzweil, which has a multi-track recorder in it, um, and that's how I write now. In the old days, I would just, you know, write on a match pack or whatever I had that, you know, pencil and paper, write the main theme. Because in commercial music, it's 14 bars of music for 30 seconds, not a lot. For TV themes, it's like you know 160 or something like that bars. But um, commercial music, whether you're scoring it or whether it's a vocal tag. Um, it's 14 bars. So it's all about that vocal thing. And if you can nail that, and that's what I was really good at. Are you right? Are you, you're, you're traditionally trained. You're reading and writing music. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's a way to, I mean, that's the way I learned making little dots on paper. Um, I learned that in my younger years when I did the demo for Super Bowl 17, my oldest son was about three or four years old and I had finished the score, left it on my piano my copyist was supposed to come and pick it up at five in the morning so we could have a session starting at 10. My son went into my studio, took my pencil and put a bunch of dots on paper like dad. And my copyist called me, woke me up about 8.30 and said, I know you're still sleeping, but what the hell are you writing about 27? <laughs> this is not like you. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, it's an E chord with an F sharp in it. So that's not gonna sound very good. So I said, I don't know, we'll figure it out in the studio. And, but, but it was funny because my son Dylan just wanted to be like dad. Yeah, my was kid very steals. Neat. He just put little tiny dots. You know? My kid steals all my present. I do all these, you know, history talks. My kid steals all my notes and does presentations in the back room. And then he he did one at school recently oh. too. But he steals all my presentations. That's but funny. Thank God he hasn't uh has hasn't abridged or or yeah. or, uh, or uh, um, changed any uh, abridged or changed any of my notes prior to an event. I'm gonna get out there and start talking. What what the hell is this? Yeah, it's funny. Well, they say you got to be careful when you're a parent of what you say and what oh, you do, man. and that's definitely true. Roger, we're literally going to ask you the same question we asked you uh, two weeks ago. We're out of time, and the stories keep flowing, man. Can you can you can you come back? I think this will probably be the one of the first times we've had somebody back on for the third time. Is that going to be possible? Sure. Thank you for joining us on Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. Make sure and catch us next time when we have world famous composer, director, producer, and uh, composer Roger Tallman back on our show at Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. <laughs>